American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome, Welcome to, to another, another episode, episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I'm Joe. I hold the record for most soup watched. That doesn't make sense. In a single day. Okay. Soup watching. I hold the soup watching record. Okay. And this is soup. This is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting facts of American pop culture history year by year. Crazy, nostalgic, and interesting. That's right. Weird things happened in the 70s. They did. And we talk about them. That's right. And we can't believe that they happened. Most of the time, it's a little too hard to believe. And tonight, we are talking about 1974. 1974, This is the third part of our three-part 74 uh, series, I guess you'd call it. Oh, it is, right. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, it it probably would behoove you. Go back. To go back and catch up. Get on back. Some of the things we talk about will be continuations of things we already talked about in the other two episodes. And if you haven't listened to any of our episodes, I would go back to maybe, I don't know, maybe mid-80s. Maybe episode, <laughs> when we got our stride. Episode 25, maybe. Or yeah, something like that. Just skip the first 10 or so, 20 Well, episodes. there's some good gems. I mean, you can go back and listen. But it, like, if you like to see where people have evolved. like that's If you true. like to see somebody where somebody's learned how to podcast, that, that's good. Nobody good. wants to. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to do that. Let's just stop putting this out. Let's just, <laughs> just give it to give our up. grandparents and that's it. Give just it up right now. My, well, send my grandmother. To I'll send it to my grandma and make her listen. She'd probably love it. She doesn't know how to listen to the podcast. Okay, so what's the first event we're going to talk about? Track. Um, we're going to talk about John Denver again. John we brought Denver him up a little was bit. big in the 70s. Yeah, we talked about him having a hair helmet and looking like a frog. And, uh, you he did thought, look like a frog. You thought he was very attractive. And no, I did not. Throb. No, and I did not. You said you were between him and Peter Scolari. You're not sure which one you love the most. That was what you said. July 27th, 1974, John Denver takes over the Billboard number one spot on the Billboard charts with Annie's song. Oh, that's a good one. Do you know how it goes? Oh, I always forget because it doesn't say Annie's song anywhere in it. Yeah, it has the same Is it, um, melody as Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, second movie. What? It does? Yeah, apparently. It, is it... Um, God... Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. In the UK, the song was used as the basis for the Greasy Chip Buddy song. How does it go? It's going to drive me nuts. Primarily associated with the fans of the football team, Sheffield United. And then Pakistani pop singer Khalid Waheed covered the song in Urdu as Mir Jeevan Men Anaya. Who cares about that? <laughs> Who gives a fuck I about that? I actually have no idea how it goes. I don't think... I do. I do. It's... it's. Oh, God. I had never heard it before. Um... I don't, I don't. You got to play it. I don't like it. I, I like that one. No, you don't. Oh, It God. goes like this. Any song. No, he doesn't say any song any anywhere. Any song. Any motherfucking song. It's driving me crazy that I can't think of it. Any fucking song, yo. Stop singing. Sorry. I thought you like it. No, I don't like it when you sing. You don't? Not don't. even when I sing awesomely like that? I don't care for it. You know what? I'm not sure things are going to work out between us. 
Does that help you? Fill up my senses. Yeah, you fill up my senses. Like a night in the forest. That's right. Mountain in springtime. You walk in the rain. Oh, that's a great song. You know, John Denver kind of epitomizes for me. I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but you know, there's some people. That you can just tell that they need glasses when they're not wearing their glasses. <laughs> you know what I mean, like they just—you can tell. They're squinty or something. Like they just need glasses. He has glasses. He does, but when he takes them off, like does he, he take them off ever? I think there's a couple of videos where he doesn't have them on. Like he just—you can tell he Are needs you making them. that up. You know what I mean? Like some people just look like they like. I don't know if there's an imprint on their head where the glasses were or something, but like <laughs> he also looks like um, there was a girl that used to spend. You can't do that on television. That. Look just like him. Come fill me Anyway, uh, he killed someone. And, no, he didn't uh, kill anybody. Drugged everybody. No, he didn't. He no, was you said that. Happy little pot smoking hippie. Yeah, hopefully he was just a good guy. But you said I you know. were worried or something wrong with him. I know. He actually wrote this song as an ode to his wife at the time. Uh, he wrote it in July 1973 in about 10 and a half minutes one day on a ski lift. Oh. On the t- To the top of Ajax Mountain in Aspen, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he had just skied down a very difficult run, and the feeling of total immersion and the beauty of the colors and sounds that filled all senses inspired him to think about his wife. That's really sweet. And then they got a divorce. Yeah. Well, there's that. I think. I think they got a divorce. I don't know. Well, he died. He did? He died in a plane crash. Oh, while he was singing, leaving on a jet plane. I kind of remember. In Colorado, right? Isn't that where he died? I think, yeah. Well, and then just two days later, the beginning of the next week, July 29th, Monday, July 29th, 1974, um, Mama Cass Elliott had performed two weeks of concerts as a solo performer at the London Palladium, and many claimed that these shows were all sold out, but she was often playing to less than full house. Uh, was just her? Crowds after the earliest date. She made an inter- uh, It wasn't the Mamas and the Papas? It was just her? It was just her, I think. Oh, um, I didn't know she did that. She made an... International call to Michelle Phillips after the final concert on July 28th. Mm-hmm. Phillips said later that Elliot sounded elated that she had received standing ovations each night. Oh, that's good. She may have retired for the evening immediately after this telephone conversation, but Debbie Reynolds claimed in her 2013 book, Unsinkable, a memoir that she and her children, Carrie Fisher and Todd Fisher, saw Elliot at a party that night at the London home of Mick Jagger. Oh. Reynolds noticed that when Elliot left the party, saying she was headed to where she was staying, she was not accompanied by anyone. Is, that, this, is this a mystery of some kind? Is that why you're laying it out like this? That night, Mama Cass Elliot, age 32, died in her sleep at the London flat where she was staying. Yep, not choking on a ham sandwich. According to forensic pathologist Keith Simpson, who conducted her autopsy, her death was due to heart failure. A drug screen that was part of the forensic autopsy revealed there were no drugs in her system. Oh, that's good. Elliot died in flat 12, 9 Curzon Place, if you want to go check it out. Shepherd Market, Mayfair, London, which was on loan from singer-songwriter Harry Nelson. Oh. Listen to this, though. Four years later, mm-hmm. the Who's drummer Keith Moon died in the same room. What? Also aged 32. No. Yes, creepy weird. That is creepy. Well, Keith Moon was a druggie and a half. Well... He also didn't we ham. wasn't that the one we talked about where they had to drag somebody out of the audience to drum because he was so fucked up. Yeah, because he yeah, that's passed true. out or yeah, something. Same guy. The Associated Press quoted pathologist Simpson as saying the following. 
at an August 5th inquest at Westminster's Coroner's Court. She weighed twice as much as she should have. One of her heart muscles had turned to fat. Oh, my God. Like I talked about before, she didn't look that fat to me. No. But uh, an oft-repeated urban legend is that Elliot choked to death on a ham sandwich. The story spread soon after the discovery of her body was based on speculation in the initial media coverage. And fat shaming. Uh, well, a 2014 article in Haritz, Haritz identified the person who started the false rumor as follows. Unfortunately, the first doctor who examined her speculated to the press about the cause of death. And that's the version that stuck. So he speculated that without yeah. any information? Yeah. He just was like, oh, it was probably just a ham sandwich that she choked on. Yeah, an autopsy had not been performed when the physician was quoted uh, that a partially eaten sandwich was found in a room it might have been relevant to the cause of death. Well, that's so that's all he stupid. said. What a jerk. Yeah. Because that's what everybody thinks of when they think of her now. Yeah. But uh, after they did the autopsy, no food was present in her windpipe. So, but the false story had persisted ever since. Okay. Oh, Stella. Is there a dog? Mm-hmm. Making a noise. Okay. I mean, Mama Cass died. Sorry about that. I know you're yeah, broken a big up. fan. Um, I like the mamas and the papas. You do? Mm-hmm. Wednesday, August 7th, 1974. After Felipe Petit. Did I say his name? You know who that is? No. P-E-T-I-T, is it petite? Petite? Petit? Petit? Petit, maybe? After Felipe Petit. Not Petit. <laughs> Petit's famous. It's not going to be Petit. After Philip Petit. <laughs> <laughs> After his famous high wire performance between the Twin Towers. Oh, wow. Remember that? No. There, there was a movie called Bird. Uh, Bird on a Wire? Bird on a Wire. Oh, okay. Wait, is that the name of it? Or is I that with Goldie Hawn? I don't know. There was a movie recently about this guy mm-hmm. that he did a, a high wire performance between the ten, Twin Towers. It was the artistic crime of the century. He was charged with trespassing and disorderly conduct. For doing that? Yeah, he wasn't. He didn't get approved by anybody. He oh, so he just did it? it? And I guess everybody was watching was real dangerous. Yeah, it uh, was. But these charges. I wonder how high up he was. Um, I think it's in here. Probably. Didn't do your research. No, it's all in here, but I have to okay. skim it. Okay. Anyway, the charges were dropped on the condition that Felipe put on a free high-wire performance for children in Central Park. For his unauthorized feet, 400 meters, 1,000 feet above the ground, which he referred to as Le Coup, he rigged a 200-kilogram cable, 440-pound cable, and used a custom-made 30-foot-long, 55-pound balance. Well, you're really, mixing up the, you're really mixing up the metric system and the U.S. customary system here in this story. Well, it's got them all in here. I decided to stop saying them okay. halfway through. So okay. you have to You're just going it. back and forth? I just do what I want. Uh, I see. He okay. performed for 45 minutes, making eight passes along the wire. The following week, he celebrated his 25th birthday. All charges were dismissed in exchange for him doing That would be the last job I would ever want, I think. I don't think it was a job. He was just doing it for fun. I mean, that would be the last thing that, that I would do. ever want to do. I couldn't do it. I would fall down immediately I to my death. I can't imagine what would drive someone to do that i would shit my pants cry i would do all those things as well yeah i'd be shitting my pants screaming while you're falling while i'm falling yeah i know and i would punch the guy next to me who's making me do why why how would you why would you want to walk on a some people just don't rope up and between the twin towers for christ's sake yeah i think i think he's 
people like that must not be human, or they must be missing something in their missing a in their the fear of, yeah, of the chromosome, some the form of self preservation that they need. Yeah, or something. whatever it is that you know, we care about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard about recently these uh, these two bloggers Mm-mm. who uh, uh, like daredevil bloggers or something. They go hiking and take selfies on cliffs and things. They just both plummeted to their death. Oh, like, they did taking a selfie. Jeez. On top of a cliff somewhere. <laughs> God. Yeah. That's kind of like, you know what? To die. You know, at some point that's going to happen to you. You keep yeah. doing that. Just like the people who have wild animals as pets. You know, mm-hmm. you keep having wild animals as pets. One's going to rip your face off. That's right. Anyway, that guy became uh, an equestrian. And he liked juggling and fencing and carpentry and rock climbing and bullfighting. So he liked all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah. And he... <clears throat> he... um. I don't know, in New York City and okay. stuff. All and right, what's some, next? Children's book. and What's next? Uh, the Walk. What? Was the movie that he was in. Oh, okay. We were way way off. Way off. But there was another one. There was another movie. Oh, Man on Wire. Man on a Wire. Man <laughs> not, on a Wire. Not Bird on a Wire. That Bird was, on a Wire is probably some romance. I think it's Goldie Hawn and Nick Nolte. Or something. <laughs> Just making up things. I know we are. I do think. Goldie Hawn might be in Muppets had just exploded. Nick Nolte, you remember that series of romantic comedies with Nick Nolte and yes. Goldie Hawn? There was like I don't know about 20 in a row. There were police that fell in love with each other, Nick Nolte and Goldie Hawn. I don't remember yeah, that. Yeah, it's just like, there was like they're like the biggest hits in yeah. all of American movies. Oh, in all of them? Yeah, Goldie Hawn and Nick Nolte. No, I don't remember. And then remember. at the end, they merge into one super being. No, that's not, that, that's in, yeah, you're Nick, making some shit up. Oh, Nick Hawn. No, you're making things Goldie up. Goldie Nolte. Not true probably drew they might be one person you've never seen them both in the same room at the same time except when they were in those movies and then on friday 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 august 9th 1974 richard m nixon resigned after the watergate scandal sweet imagine a pre- imagine a president resigning after a scandal instead of just well that was his f- saying that, that everything's fake news that's when he was quoted as saying you won't have dick nixon to kick around anymore Yep. Little did he know. Well, in light of his loss of political support and the near certainty that he would be impeached and removed, he resigned the presidency on August 9th, 1974. So the thing was, if if it was all Republicans in office, he wouldn't have resigned. He would no, that's like true. Stay. But once he knew that he was going to be impeached, he was like, oh, I'm out of here. He's like, yeah. quit. It's like somebody who quits the second they know they're going to lose. Yeah. Anyway, um... And he addressed the nation on television the previous evening. He chose to resign after realizing public opinion was not in his favor to remain in office. The resignation speech was delivered from the Oval Office and was carried live on radio and television. He stated he was resigning for the good of the country, and he asked the nation to support the new president, Gerald Ford. For the good of the country. You're right. Saturday, August 10th, 1974, Roberta Flack pushes Richard Nixon out of the news by being the number one song on the Billboard chart. Uh, yeah. Do you know what song? Is it strumming my pain with his fingers? One time. No, we talked about that. Oh, already. we did already. Uh, feel like making love. I feel like making dun 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 dun. Feel like making love. No, that's not it. No, unfortunately, it's not that. I thought for a minute when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, Roberta Flack originated that." Like, <laughs> she's a badass. <laughs> but then I listened to it, and it sounds nothing like that song. Is it um, a ballady? 
feel like making love to you. All right, quit saying you know, that. That's my, not what it is. When my brother worked at a radio station mm-hmm. in Toledo at night, it was like a third shift radio. Is it Andy? Yeah, Andy. He would get um, requests from prisoners all the time. <laughs> For <laughs> like, feel like making love? Yeah, and they'd always request that song. Like, can you please play this song? They're getting it on yeah, in the prison it. cell. Yeah. Um, it's weird. Never heard that song before. Does it make you feel like making love? Not really. Anyway, that song uh, was released nine months before the album of the same title. Become one of the. It became one of the greatest movie. Uh, it became one of the greatest musical successes of 1974, as well as Roberta Flack's recording career. Oh. It. Uh, know. She. Uh, it was Roberta Flack's third number one single making mm-hmm. her the first female vocalist to top the chart in three consecutive years. And she was born in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Oh. Did you know that? No. And we live in North Carolina. That's right. And we're part of the Queen City Podcast Network. That's true, too. Charlotte, North Carolina is the Queen City. That's true. Not Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And then Sun- that cleared up. Saturday, August 17th, 1974, uh, Paper Lace knocks Roberta Flack off the Billboard chart. Paper Lace? Paper Lace, the band Paper Lace. Yeah. You ever heard of them? No. The Night Chicago Died was hmm. the name of the song. Hmm. I don't know. Do you? This song is about a fictional shootout between the Chicago police and members of the Al Capone Syndicate. Oh. Uh, the narrator retells his mother's anguish while awaiting news of the fate of her husband, a Chicago policeman. The song is featured in a theatrical trailer of the 2000 comedy drama film High Fidelity. Oh, is it? It's also featured in season one episode of that 70s show. Oh. Well, how does it go? Um, now you got to play it. Here's the other thing. The song supposedly takes place on the east side of Chicago. The east side? Yeah. There's no east side. But that's that's the whole thing. It's, it's like the lake. There is no east side. It's the lake. I mean, there is no east side, so it's not real. Oh. That's how you know it's not real. Yeah. It'd be uh, in the water. Yeah. This is awful. I've never heard that before. I I haven't either. I don't think I've ever heard that, and it sucks. Yeah, it does. Uh, I I guess I could, the only only use I could see of that is if somebody was playing a Chicago team, like in a playoffs or something, they would play it. Yeah. Smack if they beat them. Other (laughs) than that, it sucks. I don't know. It's stupid. Yep. A lot of stuff was stupid in the 70s. Mm Yeah. Some stuff was cool and I'm great. I'm just comparing it to the 80s, and it's like it, there's so it, much more crap in the 80s in the as 80s far as music crappy, goes. But isn't it just weird that there's, like, here's two songs right in a row that were number one. And then we right? don't, the whole have never of, heard of. We've never, like, heard of it again or it's don't true. know it. It's so weird. You'd think those it's would be. Weird. It's so weird here. It's, it's like it's so weird here. Funny, but really it's weird. Like, it's, like, it's like a baby, but it's talking. It's got a voice in its head. It's like it's so weird here. Uh, Saturday, August 24th, 1974, Paul Anka and Odia Coates take over the Billboard charts Paul Anka. all the way till September 13th. You're having my baby. Mm, you know that? No. Nope. Paul Anka? Paul Anka is... I don't know if I know any Paul Anka. Speaking of terrible, Paul Anka is terrible. Did he sing Donka Shane or was that Wayne Newton? Oh, I 
I think that's Wayne Newton, but okay. I don't want to go on the record. I don't know if I know any Paul Anka songs. I mean, I know who he is, but I don't think I know any of his songs. Um, so this song, this uh, caused kind of an uproar uh, uh, with, um, I think, later on. Yeah. With, like, pro, uh, like, feminism and stuff because the whole song oh. is you're having my baby and it's all like like some of the words are uh, directly like women were very upset because some of the words were let's see it was criticized uh, for declaring the child the man's rather than the couple's baby um, and they they were saying how let's see and he said, "I wasn't meant to alienate anyone. I could have called it have, could have called it having our baby, but the other one just sounded better." But then they they were saying how just the idea of her, uh, yeah, the National Organization of Women gave Anka the Keeper in Her Place Award during its annual put down of male chauvinism in the media on Women's Equality Day, oh. um, calling him the male chauvinist pig of the year. Uh, and there's a line in the song where he says where she could have swept it from her life instead of having the baby, a euphemism for having an abortion, mm-hmm. uh, which had recently been legalized with the Roe v. Wade thing, which we covered. Yeah. And uh, sh- she had not, though, because it was a wonderful way of showing how much she loves him by keeping that baby. Like, the baby has nothing to do with anything else other than showing him how much she yeah. loves him. Yeah. Uh, in response, Paul Inca said the song was a love song. And he also explained in 1974, what I'm saying in the song is that there is a choice. The libbers will get all over me, and I can't help that. I am into the anti-human thing, and I do understand the other side of it. There are no, there are those who can't cope, and it's not in the cards for them to have kids. I'm a libber myself in the sense that if you've got to abort, you do. Some people just can't cope. That's oh, awful. Sucks. It does. Uh, I think they're being a little nitpicky though about yeah, getting all mad about it. Yeah, I don't think you know. He's just thinking about his girlfriend having a baby, right? He didn't mean it like that, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, um, again, this was uh, I'm trying to think. Originally, something about I thought it was just him writing it himself, and it was going to be a solo song. But um, Paul Inca met the unknown Odia Coates on tour mm-hmm. and she was in the studio during a recording session and then some of the artists, some of the uh, United Artists recording executives were in there and said, hey, we're just, why don't you try putting her in there? And they became a duet. Okay. But despite his commercial success, the song has been criticized and uh, obviously for being sexist and it made the worst songs list on CNN in 2006. It was voted the number one worst song of all time. Really? Yeah. It beat uh, Cake Out in the Rain? Yeah, yeah. I think it was the worst song ever. It, wow. it does suck. Yeah, it does suck. Paul, true. Paul Anka, you're not missing anything. If no. You don't know what Paul Anka is. That's true. Um, on Saturday, September 7th, 1974, uh, the following shows debuted for the first time ever. Okay. Land of the Lost. I remember that. On NBC. Valley of the Dinosaurs on CBS. Shazam on CBS. I remember that. And Hong Kong Fooey on ABC. Oh, those are all children's programs. Yeah, those are Saturday morning. Saturday morning TV cartoons. Yeah. So it was like par- 
kind of start of that stuff. That was kind of cool. Shazam. Shazam wasn't a cartoon. It was a live action. But it was they were, uh, weren't they all part of the Marvel. the Croft comedy, or the not comedy, the Croft TV morning hour, and that had the Land of the Lost, and it had Isis, and the Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, well, Shazam and, Shazam. and Shazam and Isis were like the same show. I think okay. it was like, I, like Shazam was the first half and Isis the second half. or Something like that. Around, something I remember like that. that. But yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember it being called the Croft, whatever you said. The, but Yeah, it was. Well, on Thursday, September 12th, 1974, U.S. ski jumper Anders Hagen finished fourth at the 1924 Olympics. When 50 years later, a Norwegian historian discovered a scoring error was made and Hagen should have gotten the bronze medal. Oh, which bummer. Was, which was then handed to him in Norway in 1974 by the daughter of the original bronze medal winner. Wait a minute. I thought you said it was 20 years later that they found the error. 50 years later. 50 years later. Then how did they in give In 1924, it? he finished fourth. Oh, in 24. In 1924, he finished fourth. Oh, and so in 1974, they gave it to him. Yeah, and then they realized that he actually won third place, and the daughter of the original bronze medal winner was forced to give it to this guy instead. Okay. I'm glad he was still alive. That's yeah, yeah, he was barely fortunate. alive, and then he he immediately died after he got it. He swallowed the medal, and then... He uh, did not. He, he was, now you're making he was some shit from up. Dimension. He swallowed it, and then he choked on it, and then uh, Mama Cass came back to life. Yep. No. Um, in 1974, at the 50th reunion of the 1924 Norwegian team, Norwegian sports historian Jacob Vage was going Wait over Wait a minute. <laughs> You're just going to skim over that? Jacob Vage was going Jacob over the results. Jacob Vage? How do, you pronounce, how do you spell that? V-A-A-G-E. It's got to be yeah, Vage. Yeah, I guess it's Vage. Vage. Jacob Vage. That's a pretty Vag. unfortunate Is name. You think he was picked on at all? No. Hey, Vage. Jeez. He was going over the results when he noticed an error. The bronze medal had been awarded to Norwegian skier Thorleif Hogg, who who also won three gold medals Jeez. in the first Winter Olympics in Chamonix. And then they went up to him and said, give me that medal. And on September 12, 1974, Anders Hagen came to Norway as an 86-year-old and was given the bronze medal by Anna Maria Magnussen, Thorleif Hogg's youngest daughter. Thorleif Hogg, y'all! Yo, I'm Jeez. MC Thorleif Hogg, biatch. Good thing she got married and changed her name. If I'm a rapper, I'm going to go by Thorleif Hogg for All sure. Right. Alrighty. Saturday, September 14th, 1974, Eric Clapton takes over the Billboard number one spot with I shot the sheriff, but I didn't shoot the deputy. And I don't know if you know this, but this is a remake. It's not Bob Marley. His original. It's not Eric Clapton's original song. It's Bob Marley. Also, Eric right? Clapton is not Jamaican. Yes, that's correct. He's not. He's also not a Rastafarian. That's true. Um. When Bob Marley originally originally wrote it, his intention was to say, I shot the police, but the government would have made a fuss, so I said I shot the sheriff instead. But it's the same idea, yeah, justice. Also, uh, in 2012, Bob Marley's former girlfriend, Esther Anderson, claimed that the lyrics, Sheriff John Brown always hated me for what I don't know. Every time I plant a seed, he said, kill it before it grow. Mm -hmm. It was actually Bob Marley being very opposed to her use her use of birth control pills. He supposedly substituted the word doctor with sheriff. Oh. When he was originally writing that. But he was kind of all over the place with the with the concepts of that song. Yeah. He? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So if you, it makes more sense when you, that yeah. line, at least that line. Right. But, uh, yeah. But it's and kind I of out of context the rest of yeah. the song. But I always just thought, um, I wonder why he, it just doesn't seem sound right to me with Eric Clapton singing it. I mean, no, it's Eric true. Eric Clapton's good, but it's just like, 
I feel like it's, mis- it, it, it's a yeah. misappropriation. Or, a little bit. Or, no, what do you call it? Not misappropriation. It's, um, I know what you're saying. Culture, cultural, cultural appropriation. appropriation or, yeah. I, think that's what I, was I don't know. It just doesn't seem, I don't know. It seems like it's wrong or something. Well, it's kind of like it's there's no political context for him to be singing that because he's yeah. this white British guy. He's a white British guy with that. Hasn't had any, yeah. Mm, you know, so what's the point of it? It wouldn't be a thing at all. So Saturday, September 21st, 1974, Barry White takes over the Billboard number one spot. You know what song? No. Can't get enough of your no, love, baby. baby. That's a good one. Uh, this song was featured in the films Cookie. Don't know that. In 1989, Blast from the Past in 1999, Down to You in 2000, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton in 2004, Robots in 2005, and 16 Blocks in 2006. Okay. I don't know any of those songs. No. Um, I think Robots was a kid's movie. But this song also appeared in several episodes of the Fox TV series The Simpsons. Yeah. Including, anyway, several episodes. Uh, But Barry White was a big fan of The Simpsons. He recorded a version especially for the episode Whacking Day. In which he also appeared as a guest star. Yeah. Yep. I just think that was cool that he liked The Simpsons. Yeah, it is funny. Um, oh, also, Taylor Dane redid the song. What? <laughs> Once, yeah. I yeah. bet that was awful. Yeah. Her version of the song made an appearance in season one, episode three of The Nanny. Jeez. Oh, guys, not great. Taylor Dane. There's That's a probably reason your I never fa- watched The probably Nanny. Probably your favorite version. You remember Taylor Dane? Yes. Well, how could you watch The Nanny with uh, Fran Drescher? Is My mom liked that show. Oh, whoops. Yep. Sorry, Mary, but um, got to call you out on this one. That show's I think she just liked the way she dressed, I think. Oh, she did? I can't stand her voice. Like, I can't listen yeah. to it. Like, yeah, it's I, annoying. It immediately makes me throw up and punch myself in it the makes crotch. makes your balls shrink up and into I your stomach. I punch the television, and then I, uh, I go into the bathroom, and I bang my head on the sink. Yeah, don't watch don't watch programs that do that. It's just that her voice makes me do that. Yeah. What else, babe? Wednesday, September 25th, 1974. This is going to be right up your alley. This is going to be your favorite thing. Okay. The longest confirmed golf shot ever occurred. No, wait a minute. 64-year-old Mike Austin hit his ball 515 yards with a wooden-headed driver. That is not up my alley. It's golf. It's the longest ever golf shot. That is so not up my alley. The guy was 64 years old. further from my alley. It was an old man did it. Who cares? He was 64. Who gives a shit? Well, several factors make this record feat especially amazing. Although there was a tailwind estimated 25 miles per hour, the drive was done on level ground using a persimmon wood driver with 10 degrees of loft and a 43-and-a-half-inch extra, extra stiff steel shaft. You know, the ball was uh, soft, balata, and Mike Austin was 64 years old. Honey, the no, imp- <laughs> nobody cares about the this. The improved technology of today should achieve far greater distances in the same conditions, but it hasn't, honey. It's a... Uh, Golf. I mean, there, a lot of people listen to our podcast for the golf talk. A lot of people want the expert golf opinions. And okay. So well, there they go. That's why I put that on no, there. They got it. And then Saturday, September 28th, 1974, mm-hmm. Andy Kim takes over the Billboard number one spot. Never heard of him. Andy Kim. Oh, oh I thought you said Andy Gibb at first. Andy Kim. No, never heard of him. Rock Me Gently. Mm-hmm. This that, is a, I might know if I heard it. This Canadian singer, who had achieved several hits from 68 to 71, had not had a top 100 single since September 1971 and had been without a record label since early 1973. Nevertheless, he said in a 1974 interview, I never mentally admitted defeat in spite of three years off the charts. He formed his own label, Ice Records, 
and personally financed the record session that produced Rock Me Gently, this song. He could afford to record only two sides, and deciding the second side was good enough to be an A-side, he put an instrumental of Rock Me Gently on its B-side. So he just had that song and then an instrumental instrumental version of it on the other? Yep. Okay. Um, Oh, I have heard this before. Sounds like Neil Diamond. You remember the song? Now I do. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, I always thought that was Neil Diamond. Yeah, it sounds like Neil Diamond. Even the words sound like Neil Diamond words, you know, like that he's used in other songs. So Mm -hmm. kind of Neil Diamond-esque, I guess. Um, Friday, October 4th, 1974. Yeah. Are you okay? Yes. Some urban legends say that the real Texas Chainsaw Massacre took place near Poth, a small town about 36 miles southeast of San Antonio. Do tell. But this is false. Oh, the film is actually fictional and based loosely on the life of, of Ed Gein, Wisconsin serial killer Ed Gein. That's right, I know that. But as, so is the same the movie Psycho. Yes, that's right, and a, Silence a, of the Lambs, as well as Buffalo Bill the movie Silence of the Lambs. That's right. Um, but Friday, October fourth is when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. That's a good movie. And according to John, did I ever make you watch that? Yeah, you did. I did. I think. I know I've seen it, and I don't know why I would have seen it other than you making me. That's a good one. According to John Larroquette, mm-hmm. his payment for doing the opening narration yep. was a marijuana joint. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? Did you know he did the opening yeah, narration? Yeah, I did. I did yeah, know they, that. They paid him in weed. He did a good job with that opening narration. It he makes did. it it sets it up like it's like it's a documentary and it and it the grainy quality of it and everything makes it makes it seem like it's real and that it's like a documentary. It's it's really effective. Well, I'm I'm hesitant to tell you this next thing because you're going to want to go do this, but the gas station that the kids stop at yeah. was bought from the family of the original owners and is being renovated and turned into a Texas Chainsaw Massacre horror campground. Oh. Ground, sorry. Well, we're not going to be going to Texas just to do that, though. The new owner is in the process of finding and purchasing as many original or contemporary period pieces for the resort. The owner is Roy Rose, and he is putting in a restaurant, a music venue, and overnight cabins. I wonder what they're going to serve at the restaurant. Yeah. Human human barbecue? Yeah. Because that's what the whole thing was. Butts, butt steak. You're going to want to go there now probably and get killled. You'd probably be excited I wouldn't want to eat in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre-themed uh, restaurant you just because of the nature of the... Let me ask you this. somebody who loves... Horror and slasher, being scared and murders and rapes that you love so much. Like, I would, don't you, love be, would rapes. you be like thrilled? Like, if you were about to get murdered by a murderer, would you just be like, "Oh, this is awesome! Yeah, no. kill me! Yeah, murder me!" No. Like, as they're slashing you. No. I think you would. You'd no. be like, "Yes, this is awesome." No, it's it's the the thrill is in the in hearing. It's a fascination. But if I was in immediate danger, of course not. Nah, I think you'd like it. Idiot. <laughs> Idiots. That's harsh. <laughs> Saturday, October 5th, 1974, Olivia Newton-John takes over the Billboard number one spot with the worst song I think I've Purposely ever heard. Purposely devoted to you? In my life. No, Grease wasn't out yet. Oh, 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 oh. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, but it might as well be that song. Jolene? No. This song, I... I I made, it, it, I, made a play, um, I made a playlist of my in my car for the number of one songs to yeah, listen to. Yeah, and this one you had to fast forward. No, I almost drove off a cliff. <laughs> I heard the song and I just wanted to die immediately. What I, is it? I tried to just ram everyone. I I went in the opposite lane on the highway. You did not. Just what is to kill song? myself because I this song is so bad. What is it? I honestly love you. I love you. 
honestly love you. It's so bad. It's really bad. It's the worst. It is. Um, it was her first. And the end, she's. I honestly love you. It's like her, she, it's real uh, overwrought. It's like so that. bad. It's her first number one in U.S. and Canada, and a snippet of this song plays over Chief Brody's radio in the second shark attack in Jaws. Does it? I don't remember that. We just watched that movie. Moments before Alex Kittner and Pippet the dog disappear beneath the waves. Oh, I don't remember that. Well, I'm not going back to hear that because I hate it. Yeah. And then Thursday, October 17th, 1974, the Oakland A's win the World Series. All right. This World Series matched the two-time defending champion Oakland Athletics against the Los Angeles Dodgers with the A's winning the series in five games. Raleigh Fingers figured in three of the four Oakland victories, mm-hmm. posting a win and two saves, and was honored as a series MVP. Do you know who Raleigh Fingers is? Nope. He had a curly mustache. That mar- narrows it down. That's the only thing I knew about him other- until this. Okay. Is that his baseball card every year, he had one of those stupid curly mustaches. Yeah. He put wax in his mustache to have a dumb curly mustache. You know, you, did you work with somebody who looks like that? Yeah, he does. And we just had a big, long conversation the other day about, like, why is it I got to do that? Um, what if he listens to the podcast? Now he's even mad at you. Well, well, then he can call in and tell us why he does that. He doesn't want to start podcast, I'm sure. He's trying to be stylish. He's trying to... You, you know write, what, honey? If you want to sing out, sing out. If you want to sing out, That's what sing I got to say about it. Just don't do it with your dick out. That's dick right. Out, that's out. the, third, that's the fourth verse of that song. Because yeah. sometimes when you have that out, that you get stuck in your zipper. Really Did you hear about that guy who um, was the Swiss cheese, the Swiss cheese flasher? No. He would... He would put um, his wiener in cheese? He would... He would have Swiss cheese, and he would put it down <laughs> by his crotch yeah. and drive around. And then when if he would like get somebody look at it, and he'd be jacking off <laughs> next to this piece of Swiss cheese. Why and he wrote about and why he, would he have cheese? He he was a, he had a thing with cheese. He loved Swiss cheese. He thought it smelled good, and he 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 turned him on. Swiss cheese turned him on. And and he would he would have a Swiss cheese and a jack off and. <laughs> That's so stupid. I, <laughs> You're a better man for knowing that. I don't. I don't know where that. I don't know why I brought that up. This is the worst. All right, podcast. we can move on. I don't know why I brought that up. We can move on. That's disgusting. Um, I don't. People get are it. people are disgusting. People are strange. It's true. And that guy's probably a CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. I don't think so. Saturday, October nineteenth, nineteen seventy-four. Billy Preston takes over the Billboard number one spot with. Nothing from nothing ain't nothing. nothing. I, I thought we already had that. We talked about that briefly because it came up in your story, I think. Oh, okay. Last episode. It's a good song. Uh, but what I didn't mention, I don't think, is that uh, this was the first ever musical performance on Saturday Night Live. Oh. Well, that's a yeah. landmark of some sort. Yeah. I, you don't remember me saying that, do you? No. Yeah. First ever musical performance. Okay. That was nothing from nothing mean nothing, which that makes me think we missed the debut of Saturday Night Live, which I should have covered that at some point. Yeah, you dumbass. I think 74 is when it started, so. You fucking idiot. To, fucking idiot. You're really getting harsh <laughs> on me. I feel bad <laughs> about myself. October 26, 1974, Dionne Warwick knocks Billy Preston off. She knocks him off? She knocks him off. Dionne Warwick and the Spinners. Yeah. Then Came You. I don't know that one. And this isn't the, uh, don't get this mixed up with the uh, Webster theme song. I never would. Okay. Because I think that was a better version. They they used this song in then the Webster? You? No, the Webster Then Came You is better than this. But um, How do you remember the Webster theme song? Don't you remember There's, the Webster? What is wrong with your brain? That's it? No. 
This is nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Yeah, I know this one. Oh God. Then came you. All right. We got to was like 25 and then <laughs> he was he was a 45-year-old man in that show Webster, but you got to admit that was the greatest theme song ever and Webster was the greatest theme song. No, show it's of all not time. neither of those are true. Oh, that song that Dionne Warwick song was a duet with the Spinners, maiden lead singer Bobby Smith and the Spinners, who were one of the most popular groups of the decade. And that song became Warwick's first ever single to reach number one oh. in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. All right. And it was the, also the first number one pop hit for the Spinners. Oh, okay. And then, speaking of women's lib mm-hmm. and all that, Monday, October 28, 1974, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was passed. Yeah. Because until then, banks could refuse to issue a credit card to a woman unless she was married and her husband co-signed for the card. Oh, you're kidding. A divorced woman was considered too much of a risk because she couldn't keep a marriage under <gasps> control. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's awful. 1974? Yeah, man. Oh, my God. You would have hated the 70s. Yeah. Holy shit. Sorry. Sorry, that's the way You would think that would have been like the 40s or something when that happened. Yeah, a little perspective goes a long way. Yes, it does. You got to realize it ain't that long ago. No. Things was crazy. Wednesday, October 30th, 1974, Stephen King checked in as the only guest in the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. Where he wrote The Shining. Before it shut down for the winter. Great. Thanks for just ruining it. Sorry. He dreamed that night of his three-year-old son being chased through the long, empty corridors, and he woke up and had the inspiration for The Shining. Yes. Some folks call it The Shining. Nobody does except The Simpsons. So he, he wrote The Shining. He and his wife... Were happened to be just driving through Estes Park at night, yeah. Uh, as night approached, when they happened upon the Stanley Hotel, they decided to book a room, and upon checking in, discovered that they were the only overnight guests. Oh my God, it's a huge hotel, and they were just getting ready. It's to a big clo- old giant mansion. Yeah, they were just getting ready to close for the season, mm-hmm. and he says we found ourselves the only guests in the place with all those long empty corridors. He and his wife, were, oh my God, were served dinner in an empty dining room accompanied by canned. Orchestral music. Yipe. Orchestral music, I should say. Orchestral? Yeah. Orchestral, I think is how you say it. Yep. Except for our table, all the chairs were up on the table. So the music is echoing down the hall, and I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear that and see those things. That night, according to King, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair, looking out the window at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of The Shining firmly set in my mind. Oh, man. Any big hotels have got scandals, King wrote in The Shining, just like every big hotel's got a ghost. Why? Hell, people come and go. Sometimes one of them will pop off in his room, heart attack or stroke or something like that. Hotels are superstitious places. Sweet. Yeah, isn't that cool? We, got, we mm-hmm. have the actual date where he got the inspiration of that. And then Saturday, November 2nd, 1974, Stevie Wonder takes over the Billboard charts with a song dedicated to Richard Nixon, You Haven't Done Nothing. I don't know that one. The song was one of the angriest political statements and was aimed squarely at Nixon, who resigned two days after the record's release. 
the Jackson Five actually sing the words "do do da wop" on this song in the chorus when Wonder sings, "Jackson Five, join along with me." Say, I wish I didn't realize they were in that. Did you have you heard this before? This song? Yeah. Yeah, you'll know it. Kind of sounds like another one. Yeah. It's a good song. Yeah. Before, right? I don't know. I don't know if I hear that. They use that song. You can hardly hear the Jackson 5. It's yeah, funny that it's they just were a little bit part of it. Yeah. Um, and that doo-doo-wop is used in something else. I think Boys to Men or something have, have taken they that. They use the it. Doo-doo-wop. Yeah. So, no, that's a great song. And I, I, I remember that one. That's about the only one I think I remember from this year. Okay. Um, Stevie Wonder's great. Yeah. Uh, Until he did uh, You Got a Friend or whatever it was. You mean I just called? I just oh, yes, called. That one's awful. To say I love. No, that's a great song too. And Mm-mm. you take that back. No. Stevie Wonder's a good friend of mine. Wasn't he? Didn't he sing "You Got a Friend" with all those people? Oh, that's what friends are for. That's what friends are for. Or that's Dion what I'm Warwick, thinking. But he was in that. But I think that's a great song too. Oh, that's awful. Keep shining. Oh, that's awful. Keep smiling. That's a great song. And then November 9th, Saturday, November 9th, nineteen seventy-four, Bachman Turner Overdrive takes over the Billboard Sweet. number one spot. You know what song? No. It also has the word nothing in it. Okay. How do you know? No. You ain't seen nothing yet. Oh. Come on, baby. baby. You just you ain't seen nothing, nothing, nothing yet. yet. There's some funny things about this. Um, that uh, song was originally uh, just an instrumental piece okay. inspired by the rhythm guitar of Dave Mason. Mm-hmm. And they would just uh, they would just play that song as a work track in the studio just to get the amplifiers and microphones set properly to just like mm-hmm. kind of play around. And uh, so uh, Randy Bachman, mm-hmm. is that his name? Randy Bach, Bachman. He um, 
he said he wrote the lyrics just messing around, like just trying to fill space and test the microphones. And so he was just uh, making them up out of the blue and stuttering them kind of to make it mm-hmm. fit. And um, and then once they decided to actually record it, he tried to like change them. And it didn't work. But nothing fit other than just babies and ain't seen nothing yet. So I thought that was interesting how that kind of became a song. And that brings us to... The Amityville Horror, as it was soon known, became one of the most famous incidents of paranormal activity ever recorded. It would inspire a book and a successful series of Hollywood films. The account of the young Lutz family being tormented by demonic pigs, plagues of flies, and green slime oozing from the walls terrified readers and moviegoers, all the more so because it was labeled as a true story. Mm. One surprisingly little-known fact about the Amityville Horror is that it was an admitted hoax. George Lux and his wife Kathy invented the haunting with the help of lawyer and literary agent William Weber. Oh, it's not a real thing? Nope. Now, now that you're not talking about, this isn't when the movie came out, right? This is when the actual events happened? Right. Okay. That inspired the movie? the paranormal version obscures a very real horror, one far more frightening and mysterious than the fanciful tales of poltergeist Hollywood gave the world. Because in the same house less than two years earlier, one of the strangest and most baffling mass murders in recent history occurred. Really? The first sign that something was terribly wrong in the picturesque Suffolk County coastal village of Amityville came at around 6.30 p.m. on November 13, 1974. Oh, that's, you know, that's the same day that the, the movie, the, the third top grossing movie, The Trial of Billy Jack, came out? Okay. Was that Billy Jack, the there's, same? Yeah, there's another movie about Jeez. Billy Jack, and they're all terrible. There are. Um, but this film was the first film to be launched in a wide release in the modern fashion. Debuting simultaneously at over 1,000 theaters and booked by filmmakers, by the filmmakers on a four-wall basis, renting the theaters and controlling the box office receipts. Major distributors did not attempt wide release debuts until 1975. Yeah, really? They didn't yeah, do that so until this then. was like the first one. Um, uh, what was going to say? Um, but this one, after Billy Jack is sentenced to four years in prison for the involuntary manslaughter in the first film, the Freedom School expands and flourishes under the guidance of Gene Roberts. The utopian existence of the school is characterized by everything ranging from yoga sports to muckracking journalism. The diverse muckraking, not muckracking. Oh well, this one is spelled uh, IMDb spells it M U C K R A C K. Hmm. So maybe I think it's that's a, wrong. Maybe it's a uh, Typo. spelling error. Yeah. Muckraking. Mm-hmm. Muck raking German. Yeah, I guess that would be. Why would you rack muck? You'd be mm-hmm. raking muck. Mm-hmm. The diverse student population airs scathing political exposés on their privately owned television station. The narrow-minded townspeople have different ideas about the, their brand of liberalism. Billy Jack is released, and things heat up for the school. Students are threatened and abused, and the Native Americans in the neighboring village are taunted and mistreated. After Billy Jack undergoes a vision quest, the governor and the Jesus. police plot to permanently put an end to their liberal shenanigans. And he does some high kicks. You get some high kicks and kicking people in the neck. Leaving it up to Billy Jack to save the day. Okay, so on that same day, yeah. a frantic local resident named Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr. burst into Henry's bar with a shocking story. you got to help me, he yelled. I think my mother and father are shot. Wait a minute. He burst in there the same day that That's My Mama was on CBS? Yes. Starring uh, Clifton Davis and Teresa Merritt? Yes. Also Ted Lang? A.K.A. Isaac from the Love Boat. Okay. He was on that show. Several of the bar's patrons immediately rushed to the house where they were hit with the stench of death. DeFeo's mother and father were both shot in their beds. Worse still, four of their children had been slaughtered as well. One of the men, Joe Yeswit, called the Suffolk County Police with the awful news. 
On their arrival, a search of the house confirmed the worst. Every member of the DeFeo family, save for Butch, was dead. Butch killed him. The victims were Ronald DeFeo Sr., 43, Louise DeFeo, 42, and four of their children, Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew. How old was Butch? Uh, or, or Butch. He was in his, he was like 19, I think. Okay, Butch. Each of them had been shot execution style at close range as they slept, and all six were found laying in their beds face down on their stomachs. Hmm. As police trolled the house, the lone survivor, Butch DeFeo, got a forlorn figure outside, refusing to go inside. DeFeo mentioned to officers that he felt a mob hit was responsible for the killings, a suggestion taken seriously because of the methodical way the family seemed to have been killed. Hmm. DeFeo was taken into police custody for his own protection, but didn't stick to his mob story for very long. Within 24 hours, the surviving DeFeo had made a shocking confession. He had murdered his entire family himself. Oh, Butch did it. Quote, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast, DeFeo told stunned detectives. You know, it's like anything else. Once you start murdering somebody, you That's just right. can't stop. After the murders, he it's admitted like chips. he took a shower, changed his clothes, and disposed of the murder weapon. With a, col- with a full confession, the subsequent investigation seemed straightforward. At around 3.15 a.m. on November 13th, Bush De- Butch DeFeo had awoken, and for reasons that may forever remain unclear, took a 35 caliber Marlin rifle and systematically shot all six members of his family. But even some of the detectives, keen to quickly wrap up their biggest ever murder case, could see there was something very wrong with this story. Hmm. How had Butch shot six people in four different rooms without any of them waking up? How had no neighbors heard the rifle blasts? If everyone was shot in bed, how had blood splatter got on the floor and a dresser? Hmm. Many had begun to feel Butch could not have acted alone. Unburnt gunshot residue on DeFeo's sister Dawn even indicated she might have been involved. Were there other gunmen in the DeFeo family massacre? Uh, so maybe somebody else helped, and then he killed them afterwards. Yeah, it's something. Maybe he just didn't want them to see That's My Mama on CBS later on. It could be. At the subsequent trial, Ronald DeFeo Jr. proved to be a terrible witness. His story constantly changed, and his erratic and strange behavior alienated him to everyone. He even threatened to kill the judge and his own lawyer. That's not going to win you many cases. No. No, it's not. It's not a strategy I would recommend. On November 21st, 1975. Yep. I didn't look at that. You didn't look that up. Okay. Uh, He was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. But it might be when Ricky the Dragon Steamboat debuted in pro wrestling. It might be. That exact date might be. Yeah. He was sentenced to six concurrent 25-year sentences, although he's unlikely to ever be released. But despite the conviction, it was clear there was a serious problem with the official story. Uh-oh. The court had determined that DeFeo had acted alone, killing all six members of his family with a 35 gauge Marlin rifle. DeFeo had supposedly shot each victim as they slept, and both prosecution and defense agreed he had not used a silencer. How had DeFeo committed the shooting alone without any of his family waking up? Huh. Defense experts had conducted an experiment on the Marlin rifle and found its report was so loud that it could be heard almost a mile away. According to the autopsy and ballistic reports, each victim was shot as they were found, face down in their beds. It seemed none of them had been awoken by the shots, and none had put up any kind of struggle or tried to hide or flee the scene. The former Amityville police chief was one of the first law enforcement officers at the scene. To this day, he finds it hard to believe DeFeo could have committed the shootings without any members of his family waking. Hmm. Uh, what made this particularly inexplicable was the location of the six bodies strongly suggested DeFeo could have not have committed the shooting so rapidly that no one had time to react. In fact, DeFeo had fired a total of eight ear-shredding shots, estimated to be 140 decibels each, in four different rooms of the sprawling house, across two different floors, mm. and yet it seemed he had not disturbed anyone. 
nor did any neighbors hear the shots. 112 Ocean Avenue was not an isolated property. It was surrounded quite closely by other homes. When police interviewed the residents, nobody reported hearing anything except the barking of the DeFeo family dog. Dr. Howard Edelman, Deputy Chief Medical Examiner, was present at the crime scene and personally conducted the autopsies on the DeFeo family. He testified at the trial that he felt it was impossible one person could have committed the crimes. Quote, even if they were sleeping, the report of the weapon that was used is supposed to be so loud that it would have, so to speak, awakened the dead, he said. And neither had any of the victims been drugged. We did extensive toxicology, not only on the blood and urine, but on all the organs that we removed. And it blood turned and up urine, zero that there wasn't anything in their body, Adelman explained. The idea that Butch DeFeo had committed the crimes on his own was becoming increasingly untenable. Even the man who secured DeFeo's 25-to-life prison sentence for the crimes, Prosecutor Gerard Sullivan, long suspected that other shooters were involved. Quote, I wonder about the questions that were never answered. Did any of the victims wake up? If so, why didn't any of them defend themselves? Why were all six found face down in death? Why didn't anyone hear the shots? If then, as seemed likely, DeFeo hadn't acted alone. Who had helped him commit this horrifying crime? Several investigators and authors have suggested Bush DeFeo's oldest sister, Dawn, played some part in the shootings. But even if they helped, if somebody helped, you still, neighbors would have heard it. That's right. That's so, the weird thing. So what must have happened is he froze time. He froze time. He froze time and, and then did it and then unfroze time. And then unfroze That's time. Family, probably. The first five victims were on the second floor of the DeFeo house. Ronald Sr. and Mother Louise were both shot twice in the master bedroom. Poor Louise. Moving across to the other side of the house, the gunman then shot the two boys, Mark and John. Mark. Contemplating the second, I'm sorry, completing the second floor oh shootings. Oh, God, I, how can you make a mistake, make a mistake like, like, that? like that? Completing the second floor shootings, 13-year-old yeah. Allison DeFeo was shot once in the head. That's a total of seven shots at 140 decibels each before the gunman even started to ascend the stairs to Don DeFeo's third floor bedroom. It's therefore unthinkable that Dawn, entirely unsedated or drugged, would not already have been alerted to a gunman before they'd even arrived on the third floor. Mm. Yet, as we have seen, she appeared to be peacefully asleep, face down in her bed, having made no attempt to escape, defend herself, or hide. Had Dawn, as some suspected, actually participated in the shooting herself, only to then be shot by her brother and placed in her bed. Although Butch DeFeo is notorious for the sheer number of contradictory stories he has told about the murders over the years, one of his more consistent accounts is indeed that Dawn took part in the killings. In most, so he did say that he she said did. yes. Butch. In most versions of his story, he has claimed responsibility for the murder of his mother and father and shown little remorse for them. But he has often blamed Dawn for killing the family's children, Mark, John, and Allison. So, do we think that the the parents were abusive or i think the dad was abusive and nasty or something the, the dad was i to. think Maybe if, a dysfunctional family and he was a big druggie the dad but butch butch uh ronald defeo butch butch after discovering what she had done defeo says he then killed dawn after a struggle with the rifle some evidence does exist to tentatively support this scenario dawn seems to have been killed somewhere other than her bed and placed there after death Crime scene investigators discovered that Dawn had suffered a huge head wound and that brain matter and blood were on her pillow, bedclothes, and nightgown. Massive head wound, Harry. Yet her white headboard, just inches from her head, was pristine. The lack of blood splatter was strongly indicative that she had been shot somewhere else. Hmm. Blood splatter was also found on a dresser and floorboards in the house, again demonstrating the possibility, at least, some of the shootings had occurred away from the beds. Some investigators have speculated that unburnt gunshot residue found on Don's body indicates she may have handled a firearm or ammunition, although the prosecution expert at the trial thought this could have occurred as a result of the muzzle flash when Don was shot. 
So maybe they were all killed somewhere else off site. And then placed and then he in the bed. Placed beds. all their bodies because uh, right because that would explain how you neighbors wouldn't have heard the shots. Yeah. And then he maybe killed them all in one. But why wouldn't there be? I mean, there's some blood on the floorboards, but why wouldn't there be any drag marks through the house or anything like? Yeah, I don't know. Especially with the dad, big heavy man. Oh, he's a fat guy? He kind of, yeah. Fat guy. And Rick Moran, amongst the first group of reports at, reporters at the Wait, scene. Rick that, Moranis? Rick Moran. Oh. One of the first group of reporters at the scene the night the bodies were discovered has studied the DeFeo murders for more than 30 years. He is sure that Dawn was involved in some way. Yeah. Moran Somebody. cites one of Butch DeFeo's stra- strangest Bunch. claims amongst his many conflicting statements as evidence. DeFeo has said several times that on the night of the shootings, he was watching TV in a drug-induced haze when a strange black-hooded figure came to him and handed him a rifle and urged him to commit the murders. You know, there's no other way to watch TV than in a drug-induced haze in the 70s, that's really. That's true. In the 70s, that's right. Yeah. Moran thinks the figure could have been Dawn. According to the, report, the, according to the reporter, Dawn was often spotted by neighbors wearing a black snorkel-style coat, which I don't know what that means. Well, I, I would, you know, the which, style and... and Dawn really looked good in her snorkel-style coat. You Which know, may coat have led a, a heavily stoned butch to mistake her for the sinister figure. Oh, butch. Although clearly highly anecdotal, Moran says one of his contacts at the DEA backs up the story. He had told Moran that someone from the DEA actually had the house under surveillance the night of the murders due to a suspicion that butch had been smuggling drugs in his speedboat. Uh, I like Butch more and more every time we talk about him. This this DEA agent had supposedly observed Dawn in her black coat leaving the house with a rifle, getting into a car, and driving off in the direction the firearm was subsequently found by the police. If Dawn and Butch plotted the murders together, could Butch's incapacity due to heavy drug use have spurred Dawn to commit them herself? And once Butch had come down, had he shot Dawn after the horror of what she had done dawned on him? On the face of this of it, this scenario seems far-fetched, but it does help explain many of the puzzling and intractable issues with the crime scene. And evidence from the trial indicates Dawn's mindset may have been disturbed enough to make her taking such extreme actions seem at least plausible. Dawn's boyfriend, William Davidge, stated to the court that Dawn was a habitual user of LSD and mescaline and had recently started to become extremely hostile towards her parents because they had refused to allow her to live with him. The DeFeo family were, by all accounts, dysfunction and troubled, and Ronald DeFeo Sr. was reported to be particularly violent, controlling, and abusive to both his wife and children, all commonly cited factors in parental side. Butch DeFeo has given several different versions of the murders in which people other than Dawn DeFeo were part of the conspiracy, but with little or no evidence to support them, Dawn remains the most likely candidate for an extra shooter. In the hours following the shooting, when police interviewed local Amityville residents, many told the detectives they felt Butch DeFeo was responsible. Considering the reputation DeFeo had developed in the sleepy community, it was not so surprising that residents immediately felt he had committed the atrocity. Over the years, he was continually in trouble for his thuggish and erratic behavior, theft, and drug abuse. Do you think people who live in a sleepy community, they realize it's sleepy? Like, are they sleepy? That, I know. We kind of live in a sleepy community. We drink some coffee. During the run-up to the murders, DeFeo's drug-taking had become particularly acute. By his own admission, he was consuming huge amounts of heroin and marijuana and drinking a bottle of scotch every day, despite already being on probation for drug crimes at the time. Oh, that, that frown upon when you're on probation? Yeah. His violence was also spiraling out of control. At the trial, much testimony was offered for DeFeo's temper and obsession with guns. One witness recalled how DeFeo had held a shotgun up at the head of a young man during a hunting party and watched stony-faced as the man turned white with fear. On another occasion, DeFeo had held a 12-gauge shotgun up against his father's head during an argument and even pulled the trigger, 
The shotgun failed to fire, and DeFeo Sr. reportedly found religion soon afterwards. Holy crap. Psychologists subsequently diagnosed Butch as having antisocial personality disorder. I don't think I would want to go hunting with Butch. No. Displaying little or no empathy for other people. Some speculated that DeFeo's many different accounts of the murders were attempts to shift blame for the deaths of his siblings to anyone but himself. Hmm. Whilst DeFeo showed no feeling for his mother and detested his father, he would always become agitated and upset when talking about the deaths of his brothers and little sister. If he could successfully convince others, and perhaps even himself, that someone else had killed the children, it may have helped assuage his own guilt about the murders. One of the major problems with the multiple gunmen scenario is the testimony of the prosecution's ballistic experts, who stated all of the wounds to the six victims were made with the same firearm. A study of the wounds to the DeFeo family and the expended cartridges found at the crime scene indicated eight shots had been fired. All eight shell casings were found and forensically linked to the 35 caliber Marlin rifle found by police thrown in the dock directly behind the house. Although Herman Race, an experienced criminologist hired by the defense, disputed this ballistic evidence, it seemed quite conclusive, but it it did little to reconcile the enduring and seemingly intractable contradictions in the case. You think he's related to Harley Race, the king of wrestling? It could be. To this day, no truly satisfactory account of what has happened has ever been offered. Butch DeFeo is no help, seemingly lost in his own miasma of lies and delusions, and everyone else who was there is dead. Poor Butch. All we know for sure is that six lives were destroyed, seven if you count Butch DeFeo, who will surely die in prison. Whatever happened that horrible night in Amityville, the truth may forever be lost amidst fictional stories of ghosts and demons. Huh. And that's the, st- the true story of the horror in but Amityville. There's a lot of there's a lot of ghost stories about it? Well, they say that that, you know, they a lot of people say that that is why the house was haunted. That's um, how it all and happened. some like say that somebody possessed him to murder everybody, maybe. Yeah, that he was possessed or somebody said that their demonic forces caused the family not to wake up. Or, yeah, I, I know nothing about that. I've heard of Amityville horror or whatever, but I never knew what it was about. Yeah, I think. It was it, it was about the family that moved in after the the DeFeos oh, got killed. Oh, ghosts and whatever. I think but, you forced me to watch it, and I didn't care. For I don't it. know if I ever did. It's not a very good movie. It's pretty crappy. Is it stupid? It's pretty. It's Margot Kidder. I want to say. Oh, she's dead. <laughs> and James Brolin plays the dad. Oh, James Brolin, y'all. But most famous for Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But they, the family that moved in, got it real cheap. But they knew that it that this. Murder, multiple murders happened I'd, to the I'd house. I'd move into a murder house cheap, wouldn't you? A murder house? Yeah. I like don't if we get think a real big so. house real cheap? I don't think so. I would do it. You would. Yeah. You're lying. You would really wouldn't. Yeah. You would? If it's a big, nice house, cheap. Yeah, but think about all the bad energy and karma. Yeah, I'm such a cheapskate. I'll do anything for cheap. Why do you think I eat at Taco Bell? But that's what, and the, the Lutzes, that, the ones that the Amityville Horror is about. They, they st- until they died, they would still say that it was true and it was real because they left in the middle of the night and they left everything they owned in the house wow. and they never came back. <laughs> They're really scared. And Just leave everything. But you own. then the attorney and the who helped him write the book, yeah, later came out and said that they made up the story one night at, while drinking a bunch of wine and stuff that they made it up and they decided they were gonna uh, cash in on it. And, and write books and stuff, yeah, and movies, and, and right. Yeah. So they and probably so did cash in. Then we, the author wrote the wrote the book and didn't give the Lutzes enough money. Like uh, he didn't give them their cut or something. So there's this bad blood and all this other stuff. So we should do that. We should make up a story for about money. Being haunted. Yep. 
I don't think I think now now that you said that we, that's kind of out of the no question. crap. Well, I got a couple other things. The rest of the 1974 to finish it up. The number five top grossing movie, Earthquake, came out on Friday, November fifteenth. Earthquake. I don't know. Earthquake. That I bet it's bad. Various interconnected people struggle to survive when an earthquake of unimaginable magnitude hits Los Angeles. There's a lot of disaster movies yeah, in the seventies. Th- this was like the I think this was the last of the big. Disaster movies. We had airport. Um, we had the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, earthquake. it was kind of the big thing then. Like yeah. Everybody loved when there's always superstars that were in all these. Yeah, there's like star-studded. Um, but this one, uh, they invented something called Sensoround uh, for this movie. It was a, a process developed by Sirwin Vega in conjunction with Universal Studios to enhance the audio experience during film screenings. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically for this movie, it worked by adding extra range bass for sound effects. Low-frequency sounds were more felt than heard, providing a vivid complement to on-screen depictions of earth tremors, bomber formations, and amusement park rides. Um, uh, it was, yeah, from the outset, this movie was designed to be an event film, ultimately settling on the sense-around gimmick. But at one point, it was seriously entertained that chunks of polystyrene should be dropped on unsus- unsuspected viewers during the quake itself. What? Unsus- unsuspecting viewers. They thought about doing that. In the, the in the theater? Yeah, like drop pieces of ceiling oh on my people God. to like make it real. Isn't that weird? That's so dumb. Um, on a bizarre coincidence, an earthquake struck the location where the last day of shooting occurred for this movie. Oh. Isn't that weird? I wonder how big it was. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't write that down because I'm a jerk. And then Saturday, <laughs> November 16th, 1974, the very next day, John Lennon takes over the Billboard charts with Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Okay. Uh-uh. This was Lennon's only solo number one single in the U.S. during his lifetime. Really? Oh, because after he died, then they came out. Yep, and John Lennon was the last member of the Beatles to achieve his first American number one solo hit. So Imagine came out number one after he died? I guess. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought he was still alive when they came number one. The recording featured Elton John. This recording featured Elton John on harmony, vocals, and piano, which I did not know. I didn't either. And while in the studio, John Lennon, no, Elton John bet John Lennon that the song would top the charts. And such was Lennon's skepticism that John secured, Elton John secured from him a promise to appear on stage at one of his performances should the record indeed hit number one. So when the record did achieve that feat, Lennon appeared at Elton John's Thanksgiving performance at Madison Square Garden on November 28, 1974. Mm-hmm. And that was his, major, his last major concert appearance. Okay. And then, I don't know if you about, know about this, are you familiar with the... Arecibo message. Did we take the trash out? Yes. Okay. Are you familiar with the Arecibo message? No. No. And Saturday, November 16th, it was a 1974 interstellar radio message carrying basic information about humanity and Earth sent to globular, globular, sent to globular star cluster M13 in the hope that extraterrestrial intelligence might receive and decipher it. Cool. The message was broadcast into space a single time via frequency modulated radio waves at a ceremony to mark the remodeling of the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico on November 16, 1974. That's the, pretty cool. The, th- the things they included in the message, uh, they got help from Carl, dick, Carl Sagan, helped them come up with what to put in average there. Average dick size. Yeah, average dick size. Um, 
um, a picture of Liberace nude. Yeah. No, the numbers, here's what they really put. The numbers 1 to 10, mm-hmm. the atomic numbers of the elements, hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus, which make up deoxyribonucleic acid, mm-hmm. DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the formulas for the sugars and bases and the nucleotides of DNA. Mm-hmm. The number of nucleotides in DNA and a graphic of the double helix structure of DNA. A graphic figure of a human. The dimensions of an average man, average penis, <laughs> and the p- human population of Earth. Okay. A graphic of the solar system, a graphic of the Arecibo radio telescope, Arecibo, how am I saying it? Uh, since it will take nearly 25,000 years for the message to reach its intended destination, and an additional 25,000 years for any reply, the message is viewed as a demonstration of human technological achievement rather than a real attempt to enter into a conversation with extraterrestrials. Yeah, that I don't think... 25,000 years is a long time. They say that... For the last... Wh- what I've heard is that they say that interplanetary travel is impossible. Yeah. yeah. But in the interdimensional travel is what... That's how you do is it. Is how they will... Yeah, if there's if there is extraterrestrials, it'll be an interdimensional travel as another opposed dimension, to another dimension. Yeah, another dimension. That's interesting. And then November twenty third, nineteen seventy four, Billy Swan takes over the Billboard charts with "I Can Help." I don't know that. I can help. <laughs> I can help. That's not it. <laughs> that was see nothing yet. The big crossover smash between country and pop. Oh, I think I've heard this. He wrote this song when he saw a lady struggling with her groceries. And he was like, hey, I got strong arms. I can help. No, that's not true. I don't. I don't know. But anyways, uh, it's kind of crappy. Yeah, I don't know. It's not. It's nothing to write home about. Nope. And then December seventh, Carl Douglas knocks him off the charts with "Kung Fu Fighting." I love that song. Everybody was kung fu fighting. And that song was. <laughs> that song was originally meant to be a B side to "I Want to Give You My Everything." Is it a racist song? You think? I don't know. Um. I don't know. Because it, it does quick. have the dun, 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 dun yeah, part. After having spent over two hours recording the A side and then taking a break, Kung Fu Fighting was recorded quickly in the last 10 minutes of studio time in only two takes due to a three hour time constraint for the entire session. Uh, because it was a B side, they went over the top on the huhs and the haws and the chopping sounds. <laughs> it was a B side. Who's going to listen to it? And then everybody loved it. Yep. That's funny. And then after hearing both... I wonder how many times that's happened where the B-side actually turns into the hit. Yeah, I don't know. After hearing both songs, Robin Blanchflower of Pie Records insisted that Kung Fu Fighting be the A-side instead. Following the release, it didn't receive any radio airplay for the first five weeks and sold poorly, but then the song began gaining popularity in dance clubs. And that's what made it a hit. Sweet. And then Wednesday, December 11th, 1974... Oscar Gutierrez was born, better known by his ring name, Rey Mysterio Jr. Oh God, come on. He's an American professional wrestler. Who cares? 
Who cares? He's widely regarded as the greatest cruiserweight wrestler of all time. He's known for his high-flying Lucha Libre wrestling style, which is credited with having helped kickstart the emergence of cruiserweight wrestling in the United States in the mid-90s. Nobody cares. No, he had to bring wrestling in here somewhere, so that's where That's how you had to do it. And then Sunday, December 15th, 1974, Aerosmith's Walk This Way. Oh, that's a good one. Was inspired by a movie scene. I know it, Young Frankenstein. Yep, and that's when this movie came out. The that's number funny. four hot grosses. You know what? You know what scene? Yeah. What one? It's when um when they're going into the castle and Igor Igor says, "Walk this way," and then he starts limping away, and yep. then yep, and then and she, then he walks like he that. Walks he like walks that. like that. Yeah. So that that inspired yeah. that song. Did oh, you I know, know that? that. Yeah, I didn't know, I didn't that. know yeah. that either. Um, when Mel Brooks or was, Igor, I guess I should say Igor. When Mel Brooks was. Yeah, Igor. When he was preparing for this film, mm-hmm. he discovered that Ken Strickfadden, mm-hmm. who had made the elaborate electrical machinery for the lab sequences in the Universal Frankenstein films, mm-hmm. was still alive and living in the L.A. area. He visited him and found that he had stored all the equipment in his garage from the original movies. Oh. And Brooks made a deal to rent the equipment and give Strickfadden the screen credit he hadn't gotten for the original films. Oh, cool. Yeah, so how about that? How about that? And then on Monday, December 16th, 1974, the second highest grossing film came out, The Towering Inferno. Another disaster Another film. disaster. Yeah. Maybe this was the last of the disaster films. Um, let's see. Is it about a big building that goes up in flames or something? Yeah. Yeah, Towering Inferno. William Holden demanded first building. Bil- first, building? First, <coughs> William Holden. Demanded building. No. William Holden demanded first billing. However, his career had declined so much that it his only hit in recent years. Well, his career had declined so much that his only hit in recent years was the Wild Bunch, an mm-hmm. ensemble project. Therefore, he was billed after Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Yeah. Uh, according to stuntman Ernie F. Orsati, Faye Dunaway was often late to the set or didn't appear at all, and this made some scenes impossible to film and caused other actors, such as William Holden and Jennifer Jones, to become upset. Holden reportedly shoved Dunaway against the wall one day and threatened her. She's supposed to be a raging lunatic. For the next month, she had a perfect attendance record. She's supposed to be a total diva bitch. Both novels that inspired this movie Mm -hmm. uh, were inspired by the construction of the World Trade Center in the early 70s and what would happen in a fire in a skyscraper. Oh my God! Imagine. Is that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. And uh, Steve McQueen got very upset when it was discovered that Paul Newman had twelve more lines of dialogue than he did. Oh Jesus! Yeah, Steve so mad. Yeah. And Wednesday, December eighteenth, nineteen seventy-four. I don't know if you know this, but there was a Sesame Street Muppet named Don Music. Who was a composer that would bang, yeah, his, bang yeah. his head against the yeah, piano? Yeah, remember him? Remember him? Yeah, he'd bang his head. Yeah, on he'd the piano. bang his head real hard against the piano. Well, they had to stop. Sesame Street had to get rid of him. Why were kids doing that? Because kids were banging their heads. Oh my God, things. you're kidding! Yeah. that's funny. Well, yeah, I didn't know. I I remember. I remember him. Yeah, yeah, he was great. But and then I, I loved him. I, yeah, he was great. He was my he was favorite. He was so funny. He looked like Guy Smiley. He did. He looked just like Guy Smiley. And then December twenty first, nineteen seventy four, Harry Chapin takes over the Billboard charts with "Cats in the Cradle." That's a good one. Uh, the song lyrics began as a poem written by his wife Sandy. Mm-hmm. Um. Which was, and that poem itself was inspired by the awkward relationship between her first husband, James Cashmore, and his father, John, a politician who served as Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Borough President. Oh, okay. Um, but Chapin also said the song was about his own relationship with his son, Josh. 
admitting, frankly, the song scares me to death. And then on Wednesday, December 25th, Christmas Day, 1974. I don't know if you did toys. But I do have some toys. Oh, this is when G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu Grip was released. Oh. According to Joepedia, mm-hmm. the Kung Fu Grip was a mechanism used in G.I. Joe action figures starting from the Adventure Team series. The idea behind the Kung Fu Grip is that the soft rubber hands on the figures would allow them to hold their weapons better. For added fun, it enables the player to position their G.I. Joes in action poses, such as climbing up a mountain with a rope or swinging from a tree. Although the concept had nothing to do with martial arts, the technology was christened as such. Sweet. Yep. It really has nothing to do with kung fu, like just that they can hold Why stuff. Why they call it that, I wonder. Yeah. You have. You want to do, do yep. your toys? All right, so we got the Matchbox Garage. The Super Station allows you to pull apart your station and rearrange it to your own design. It includes everything you need to play mini car mechanic, including tool chest, workbenches, gas pumps, grease tracks, an air compressor, and signs. Cool. Yeah, that. Magic 8-Ball. Oh, yeah. Gaze into the Magic 8-Ball to find the answer to all your questions. Yeah, Predict fill your future it with cocaine. Do. Yes. Right. Maybe. I still use the Magic 8-Ball. The Play School McDonald's. I my decisions. That came out. Oh, yeah? Play School McDonald's with all you would expect to run your own McDonald's or invite your friends to McDonald's for burgers and fries. Eat McDonald's, children. Eat McDonald's. That's Tell right. your parents to go to McDonald's. McDonald's. Spirograph. Ageless oh, game allowing you to create complex patterns, including includes curved pieces, colored pens, paper, and baseboard. I used yep. to love Spirograph. Yeah, we love that too, man. They sell that. At, That's crazy. They, they, they do? They still sell it? They have like a, a, a selection of classic toys that you can buy now. Yeah. Like Hobby Hobby Color, Holly Hobby Color Forms. And, really? And Spirograph is one of them. Hasbro Inchworm. Did you ever have one of these? Oh, the Inchworm. You ride on? Yeah, I think uh, my cousins had that maybe. Inchworm is bright green with a yellow wheel saddle and hat. Yeah. Yep, inchworm. I used to have yeah, we that. had Inchworm. Um, let's see. The Fisher-Price Play Plane. Pl- family yeah. Jet includes yeah. a jet plane passenger it's white pilot. white and orange, right? Yep, yeah, we right. had that. I think I still have that. The game of Somewhere. Twister. Twister, y'all. Which is still around. It's a sexual game. Mrs. Beasley talking doll. In 22-inch talking Mrs. Beasley doll, she says what? 10 different happy things when you pull her ring. Cuddle, cuddly cloth body, vinyl face hands, and rooted hair you can comb. Uh, let's see if there's anything else. That's, that's enough. Well, let me just, just give me one second here. God damn. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So. Well, there's something else on Christmas Day. The, oh, 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 oh. oh. The, uh, um, Etch-a-Sketch came out. Really? Yes. Etch-a-Sketch, that's a big one. I'm glad you mentioned that. The Etch-a-Sketch, which I could never, ever get the hang of a fucking Etch-a-Sketch. I'm terrible at that, but if you break open the screen and eat the gray, silverly stuff inside, it's delicious. And... And we in 1972 or 1973, I missed the Evil Knievel uh, jump. Well, this is not Evil Knievel stunt cycle. Did you ever have that Evil yeah. Knievel where you, you it would wind it up, wind and it, it up, go, and then yeah. it would go? And yeah, but that was last episode, so we can't talk about that. I know it's it. Well, actually, it wasn't the edge sketch; it was a Magna Doodle. But that's kind of the same no. thing. Well, you're just giving false information everywhere. I apologize. I don't know if you know this, but thanks to a Japanese marketing campaign in 1974 called Kurisumasu ni wa Kentucky. Or mm-hmm. Kentucky for Christmas, eating KFC chicken on Christmas has become a tradition in Japan, and over 3.6 million Japanese families eat at KFC chicken on the holiday every year. How, what kind of families eat there? 3.6 million Japanese families. Eat at K- KFC? They have KFC. Huh. 
didn't know that. According to Smithsonian Magazine, Christmas isn't a national holiday in Japan. Only 1% of the Japanese population is estimated to be Christian. Yet a bucket of Christmas chicken, the next best thing to turkey, a meat you can't find anywhere in Japan, is the go-to meal on the big day. Oh, they don't have turkey in Japan? I never would think of that. And it's all... It's all thanks to the insanely successful Kurisumasu Niwa Kentucky. Kentucky for Christmas marketing campaign in 1974. All right. I didn't know that happened. Me neither. And sometimes they wait in line for up to two hours to get their chicken on Christmas Day. Isn't that crazy? We need to start eating that KFC for chicken. No, I don't think we're going to do that. KFC for Christmas. I don't think that's yes. Happen. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're a family. No, we're not going to do. We're that. a family. We got to live together. We're not doing it. Saturday, December twenty eighth, nineteen seventy four. Helen Reddy takes over the Billboard charts, and this song single handedly makes me take back everything I said bad about. Oh, Helen Reddy. you're kidding? Yeah, I I have to say, I like a Helen Reddy song. Oh my God! Because uh, you were cursing her up and yeah, down. Yeah, I hated Helen Reddy, and I thought that she has nothing, no redeemable qualities. But nope, this song changes it. Angie, baby. Go, Helen. You're a little touched, you know, Angie, baby. Are you kidding? Kind of funky, right? I don't know about... No, it's not good? Funky. Maybe it still sucks. I don't know. Maybe she still sucks. I, I remember thinking, oh, this isn't so bad. I mean, it's not as bad as I Am Woman Hear Me Roar, but... Yeah, that was terrible. This song is about Delta An- Dawn. Angie, Angie, baby, and the song, she has superpowers, or she's crazy, something like that. She makes people disappear and stuff. Oh, Anyway, that's all we have time for. We got to go. Thank you for listening. That was 1974 in a nutshell. Yes, in a large nutshell. In a big, stinky nutshell. We love you. Please rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, do all that. Tell your friends. Queen City Podcast Network. Check it out. Check out some of the other uh, podcasts on the Queen City Podcast Network. Yes. Uh, Big things are going to be happening next year with the network. We're going to be doing some live events, I think. There's going to be some crazy stuff, podcast festivals and whatnot. We're going to do lots of stuff. Yes. I'm just going to put that out there. Matt Truman, come on, baby. It's time for Chuck Berry to get out of here. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.